And it is Jesus who makes this a glorious day. Welcome to this morning's broadcast. Glad you could join us. Today, Joel chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, teaches that everyone is not equal before God. And it does not turn out the same for everyone. And now, with his message for today, is our pastor, Robert Elliott. Let's pray. Lord, now as we come to your word... We pray that the author of Joel chapter 3 would be our teacher. I ask you, Lord, to hide me that Jesus Christ, his program, his excellencies would be magnified. And we ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Communism is forced sharing. And theoretically, every communist has equal wealth. Communism believes that the accumulation of personal wealth is wrong, and therefore wealth is something to be confiscated. Socialism is into government equally taking care of everyone. It believes that people can't really take care of themselves, and therefore wealth is something to be redistributed. Capitalism is into the individual being both responsible and rewarded for innovation and effort. Capitalism believes in freedom to generate wealth. Wealth is something to be earned. When we come to Joel chapter 3, we come to the fact that when all is said and done, everyone is not equal before God. We are born with unalienable rights. I understand that. But when all is said and done, everyone is not equal before God. Some will be judged and others will be blessed. Communism, socialism, and capitalism focus, of course, on wealth and property. The Lord and his word focuses on relationship with him that extends past life on this earth to forever life, either in heaven or in hell. And again, with the Lord, everybody doesn't wind up equal. Everybody doesn't make heaven by virtue of having a pulse and a soul. With the Lord, people wind up in one of two very different states. They wind up either forgiven or unforgiven. They wind up either blessed or cursed They wind up either a citizen of heaven or a citizen of hell. The Old Testament book of Joel warns ancient Judah, and I might add 21st century America, about the dangers of not siding with God, as evidenced by our trust and as evidenced by our obedience. We are now very near the end of our verse-by-verse preaching series through the book of Joel, And may I review, so far in this book, we have seen some important truths. And to recap them, number one, God's prophet Joel was sent by God to warn God's people, the Jews, that both immediate and distant future judgment was on the way. Second, 
Joel consistently and repeatedly called God's people to repentance. Third, Joel called God's people to oppose open and shocking evil. Fourth, God, through Joel, told his people to get rid of their idols. And fifth, two different Distinct future periods of time were identified by the prophet Joel. The first period of time future to him and to us still, the tribulation. Seven years, a time of wrath. The second future period to Joel and still future period to us tonight, the millennium. One thousand years, a time of blessing. And so now, as I've stated, we come to chapter three, the last chapter of Joel, And this is a chapter that makes it clear that everyone does not wind up in the same condition. Put another way, God is no spiritual communist. And God is no spiritual socialist. Accordingly, the Lord doesn't confiscate spiritual wealth. And we all are spiritually bankrupt before our conversions. In Matthew 5, verse 3, the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord Jesus said, Blessed are the poor, literally in the Greek, blessed are the bankrupt in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You cannot get saved until you face the fact that in and of yourself, you are spiritually bankrupt. And so God doesn't redistribute spiritual wealth. We come into this world owing him a sin debt that is too massive to ever be worked off with our religious effort. Psalm 51.5, David's psalm of confession after sinning with Uriah and Bathsheba, said in his prayer to God, his prayer of confession, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. That is no commentary on marital sex being sin. That is a commentary on a sin nature being inherent and automatic in every single baby except the virgin-born Messiah Jesus. And so our chapter 3 in Joel breaks down into three sections. Section 1, which is verses 1 to 8, we've titled Payment. Section 2, verses 9 through the first part of 16, I've titled Valley. And section 3, verse 16b through 21, Jerusalem. And so we're going to see tonight three hangers in the closet of truth, Three hangers upon which to hang God's truth. The first hanger in the closet is payment. The second hanger is valley. And the third hanger is Jerusalem. Let's start with the first hanger, which is payment. Please follow in your copies of the Bible as I read verses 1 to 8. Payment. For behold, in those days, and at that time when I restored the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, And then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. They have also cast lots for my people, traded a boy for a harlot, and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. Moreover, what you are to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia, are you rendering me a recompense? But if you do recompense me swiftly and speedily, I will return your recompense on your head. Since you have taken my silver and my gold, brought my precious treasures 
to your temples and sold the sons of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their territory. Behold, I'm going to arouse them from the place where you have sold them and return your recompense on your head. Also, I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the sons of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a distant nation, for the Lord has spoken. Near the end of the future seven-year tribulation, there will be a battle at a place called Armageddon. At that time, demons deployed by Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet will summon all the God-haters from the nations of the world so that they would fight Christ's chosen people, the Jews. Thanks, Pastor Rob, for your message today. And now it's time for Youth Talk with Pastor Nicholas Rogers. Good morning. This is Pastor Nicholas with another edition of Youth Talk. And today we want to continue on our series, Jesus and Your Influence. And like we've already been talking about, we've talked about how we all need to recognize that we're an influence. We can either be an influence of um, negativity or we can be a positive influence. And today we want to talk about how Jesus himself betrayed what type of influence we should be. And as we know in our world today, there are many people who want to be leaders. And you may be listening to this broadcast this morning and you say, you know what, I want to be a leader. I want to be a person that people follow. But sometimes we take leadership in the wrong direction. Sometimes we take leadership as a, as a way to just tell people what to do. As, as you want to follow me, you need to do this. Or, you know, to be a leader, you need to do all these things that I do. But as we're going to look at this morning is Jesus himself did not have leadership skills in that way. Yes, Jesus was a person who was worthy to follow. Yes, Jesus was a person who would be the right person to follow. But Jesus didn't use his influence just to say, you know what? This is how I want you to lead. But he showed them how to lead. And today we want to talk about a familiar passage that we all know and we've heard. And as we consider this, we need to understand that Jesus amazed the disciples when he lowered himself and he washed their feet. In doing so, he modeled for them a powerful message. To lead others, you must serve others. And the world tells us that the influence is best achieved by winning, by arriving at the top ahead of everyone else. But Jesus said that the real influence is putting the needs of others above our own. This is, re- this is a relevant and meaningful lesson for us to understand. And I think that as we consider and you consider your life and where you're at as a student, I want you to, to think of, are you a leader or are you a follower? And in, in the passage in John ch- chapter 13 starts this way. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During the supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Jesus Christ, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God. I want to stop there for a second, because I want us to really understand what's happening here. Jesus knows that his time has come. He's getting ready to be crucified. He's getting ready to be betrayed by Judas. And Jesus doesn't, how we would consider it, we knew when our last hour was to come, we'd want to do this thing or that thing before we die. But Jesus wants to show his disciples by an example of how they should lead and how, we, uh, how he's leaving them. And he's showing them exactly what to do. Verse 4. Rose from supper, he laid aside an outer garment and taken a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. 
again, we see here Jesus is taking a task that was would be a task that we would consider a lowly task, a task that we would not consider as a leader to do. What I would like to do is to think about it this way. In my life, I remember as a, a youth pastor at another church, and I had this time when one of my student leaders came to me, and he said, well, the toilet is clogged up. And my first reaction would be, well, you need to do something about it. But the reality is that he was still young, and he didn't see the need of having to take that task on himself. So it would have been easy for me to say, well, you know what? I'm not doing that. I'm, I'm the leader. I'm the one in charge. I'm not going to do that. But no. And this is not to give me a pat on my back, but this is just reality of how we need to lead people. What I had to do is I had to go and find a plunger and, and, and unclog that toilet and so that people can use the toilet. And it was a dirty job. Um, you know, I know how many of you have ever watched the show Dirty Jobs on TV and, you know, people are caught up in dirty jobs. Even one of the one of my favorite shows to watch sometimes is Undercover Boss, where you see bosses go undercover and, and they have to see what their people really are going through. Because it's so easy to just tell someone what to do. But it's so it's harder to lead by example. It's harder to say, you know what, I want you to do this dirty job. But we as the boss or the person in charge are not willing to do that. But Jesus here shows us the example. He lowers himself. He humbles himself to show what it means to lead. That first of all, we must be able to serve someone. And here it is. He, he, he's telling disciples he wants to wash their feet. And then in verse 6, we see Simon Peter, who always is there and has something smart to say. And he says this. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what am I doing? You do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. I wanted to stop there because again, here it is. Peter is like, you know what? This just isn't right. Jesus, you shouldn't be washing my feet. I should be doing this for you. And I think that for us, you know, we need to understand again what's happening here as, as Jesus is showing by example. Here it is. Jesus already washed some of the other disciples' feet. And no one else gives a response that we know of. But it's recorded that Peter is, is asking and questioning, what are you doing? Almost to say, you know what, you could get someone else to do that. In fact, it should probably be someone here to wash our feet as we enter this house. But I think too many times as we consider life and we consider the way we lead, we forget the truth of, of God's word. We forget the truth of the greatest leader of all time. And he shows us the example to lead. He shows us how he humbles himself. And he shows us the example of what it is to lead. You see, leadership is not just about telling someone what to do. Leadership is showing them what to do and hope that they can carry on the task. But I think too many times in our culture that we want to just tell someone what to do without really showing them what to do. And Jesus, again, as Peter says, you should never wash my feet. Jesus answered, if I do not wash your feet... You have no share with me. Again, as we consider this passage, we consider, you know, just this, this statement. He's basically saying, look, if you don't let me do this, then you're not with me. You know, this is what I am, I've come to do. I've come to serve you. I've come to show you how to lead because I'm getting ready to go. And I want you to know what to do. I want you to see. I want you to practice, as we talked about last week, practice what we preach because He's showing them exactly how to lead, what to do. 
Again, it would be like me telling you something to do something, but I haven't shown you what to do. You know, we as in, in closing, just to think about we as men don't like instructions. Uh, most of the time we will try our best to put something together. And when we, you know, fail or we see something doesn't come together, and that's when we look at the instructions. Um, you know, and we live in a world today where, in fact, if we are all honest with ourselves, we don't even need the instructions sometimes in the package because we could go on YouTube and look to see manually, visually, on exactly how things are done. I think that we need to remember that because we need to do the same thing. We need to be the example that people see. We need to be the influence that people see on what leadership is all about, what a leader is all about. And I want to pick up from here the next time as we continue on to talk about what a leader is and how a leader leads. Because we need to understand that we're all an influence. And again, as we start off and we talked about, the question is, are you that leader or are you that follower? You know, when I consider leadership and follower, I think we can put them together because I think that we need to be able to be followed because of the way we lead. This is Pastor Nicholas, and this has been an edition of Utah. Today's Help for the Hearing segment is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church's Christian Counseling Center. The center is located at 58 Collins Avenue, Nassau, Bahamas. If you would like an appointment or more information, dial 323-7000. That's 323-7000. Or email them at cccbahamas at gmail.com And now, the Executive Director of the Christian Counseling Center, Pastor Frederick Arnett. Good morning again and thank you for having us in your home. Again in the studio with me is Deborah Arnett. And uh, the question that I have for you this morning, Deborah, is how do we as a nation foster honor and respect in our children? There is no simple answer for this, um, but the thing that just jumps out at me right away is the fact that it's very important for parents to model the respect and the honor that they want their children to live out and walk out. Um, I think it's important that they model it as opposed to demand it. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not just simply demonstrating courtesy when you walk in the bank and saying good morning to everybody. That's important. That's a form of respect. That's a form of honor. That's something that you should teach your children. But it is also this issue of embodying integrity. Um, if you want to be respected by your child, if you want to be honored by your child, it is very important that you be a man or a woman of integrity, that you relate with integrity. Your children are watching you. Mm -hmm. They're watching you better than you think they are. Even if they seem embedded in that um, Samsung product or um, the iPad or the iPhone, they are attending to the way that you live your life. And they, they tune in at times where you think they are most distracted and aloof and so they're paying attention to the way that you walk and the way that you deal with things mm -hmm. and if you're not embodying integrity um, it provides them with justifications to not honor you and to not walk in respect now as I said last time it's important no matter how you conduct yourself that your children honor you but at the same time if you want to foster honor in your children living a life of integrity is non-negotiable right also, last time I addressed the issue of the way that you talk with your children and the way that you communicate with your children. And for some parents, 
particularly when they're highly frustrated with a child. They feel that screaming tirades is an effective way of evoking honor and respect, particularly when they observe their child's body posture demonstrate that the child is afraid, cowering, um, retreating. That parent can feel empowered by what they're doing and what they're saying and the reaction of the child. But screaming and ranting does not evoke respect. It just evokes fear. And fear only works for a season. It also demonstrates rudeness and rage. It does not demonstrate the appropriate way to navigate various different challenges, frustrations, or even to appropriately express your anger. And so it becomes this very complicated situation where the child will perceive anger as bad or negative, particularly when your child models this behavior in another environment and they are chastised, corrected, punished, disciplined by whoever the authority is in that environment for their anger or their outburst of anger. Mm -hmm. Um, But they're living out what they see you live out. Right. But, you know, I've heard parents say over and over, the child will not move unless I shout, unless I scream at him or her. Um, then the child would make an effort to do what they want them to do. Uh, What do you think brings that about? Why is it that uh, they feel that it's necessary to scream at the child, to get him or her to do what they want them to do? As I just mentioned, of course, um, there's a sense of power when you do get that response. And if you feel powerless as a parent and you get a response, then you feel empowered. And so what you yourself are doing is that you're teaching yourself that you have to behave a certain way in order to get what you want and that's power in your home that's control over your kids but it's ineffective because what you're more than likely doing is evoking a flight fight freeze response okay so you're getting a reaction that's not a thought out reaction by your child particularly when they're younger Um, and these are natural responses or we would call them emotional reflexes where the body engages a response to protect itself. So if someone's raging and ranting and screaming, or even, unfortunately, becoming physical with you, Mm -hmm. you are either going to fight back, you are going to run, or you are going to freeze. Those are not healthy responses um, when it's in response to a parent's rage or, or tirades or yelling or screaming. Um, but they are natural responses of the body when the individual or the child feels threatened. And we all engage in these responses when we feel threatened. Um, Another thing that's very important that we can probably unpack um, the next time related to your question is that it's important to foster discipline. Okay. And that is the way that I would suggest that you tackle this issue of promoting your child's respect um, and honor without yelling, screaming, and ranting and raving. Okay, thank you very much, Deborah, and uh, thank you for uh, speaking to this, and we will continue the next time, God's willing. It's time for answers to your questions. We urge you to take a moment and get a pen and paper and take down the references used so that you can do your own study later on. We hear at Echoes of Calvary are always excited to receive your letters of support and your questions, which we seek to answer right away and also here on the show. You can send us your letters at eocradio at gmail.com. That's 
eocradio at gmail.com. Today, Pastor Elliot draws from Carl Lania's excellent book, Answers to Tough Questions. This book was published back in 1997. And once again, here is Pastor Robert Elliot. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 29 gives rise to the question, what does it mean to be baptized for the dead? In 1 Corinthians 15 verses 29 to 34, Paul argues the logic of the believer's resurrection from the viewpoint of Christian experience. Within this context, he refers to baptism for the dead. What was Paul referring to? The difficulty of the question is evidenced by the fact that there are at least 36 interpretations of this phrase. The key word in the phrase is the Greek word hooper, which can be rendered in behalf of in Romans 10 verse 1 or in the place of 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14. Morris takes the first opinion. He understands that Paul is referring to an abnormal baptismal rite that was peculiar to the Corinthians. Believers were using proxy baptism to immerse those who had died before they had been baptized. This practice did not meet with Paul's approval, but he simply refers to it in his attempt to show the logic of believing in the resurrection. The major difficulty with this view is that in the first century, Christian baptism was administered without delay. See Matthew 28:19 and Acts 8 verses 35 to 38 and Acts 10 verses 47 to 48. It is not at all likely that there would have been a significant number of people in Corinth who had believed but who had not been baptized. The other option for Hooper is to understand that Paul is referring to those who are baptized in the place of dead believers. Accordingly, Paul may refer to adding new converts to take the place of those who have died. Baptized would be understood to refer to all that baptism signifies, evangelism, conversion, and church growth. According to this view, Paul is saying your efforts at evangelism and church growth are to no avail if the dead are not raised. Since you are doing these things, you should believe in the resurrection. Although the Corinthians knew exactly what Paul was referring to, it remains unclear to modern interpreters. But while we have lost touch with this cultural element, Paul's message remains clear. Baptism, hooper, or for or on behalf of the dead, is to no avail apart from the resurrection. You've been listening to Echoes of Calvary, a radio ministry of Calvary Bible Church, Nassau, Bahamas. Our morning worship services are at 8 a.m. and 11 a.m. in our sanctuary located on Collins Avenue. We encourage you to join us. Feel free to write us at eocradio at gmail.com. That's eocradio at gmail.com or P.O. Box N1684 Nassau, Bahamas. And remember, everyone needs a Savior.